This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Eric Spitznagel, who wrote the book Rock Stars on the Record, the albums that changed their lives. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me, Stephen. So congratulations on writing and putting out a wonderful book that is In Your Own Words, a, quote, music nerds conversation with music nerds <laughs> about the albums that turned them into music nerds. I take great pride in being a music nerd. And I, I for the company of music nerds, because we can really take those deep dives that you know drive other people away to just, I think, to really roll around in your nerddom and, and be unapologetic for it is uh, the secret to happiness. Well, these conversations, as well as that line that I just said, could easily be the soundtrack of my life as well. So let me ask you, what was the genesis of this book? Well, it actually goes back quite a ways. Back in around 2014 or 15, I had written an article for MTV Hive called Old Records Never Die. I had had an interview with Questlove, and he was showing me his record collection. He has this just really amazing collection of music, just spanning his life. He's got this study just filled with records, thousands and thousands of them. And he was showing me the first record he ever bought, uh, the Sugar Hill Gang's uh, Rapper's Delight. And he still had the original 45 and the sticker on there with the price tag. And I was like, that's amazing that you still have that record. And he's like, well, you know, Spitz, you probably have like one record that you would always hold on to and, you know, never get rid of. And I said, oh, no, I've, I threw my records out in the 90s. I got rid of them. And he looked at me like, I mean, he was horrified with me. So I went off in this quest and I, I was like, I need to find my records. I need to get them back and not just duplicates, but like the exact records that I, that I gave up, the ones with, you know, my first girlfriend's phone number written on them and, and the, the replacements, let it be that, you know, still smells like weed. <laughs> uh, Cause that's where I hid it in the eighties. You got to hide your weed in very specific records. And for some reason I thought that was clever, but during the course of that, it, I ended up, it, I turned the article into a book also called Old Records Never Die about finding those old records and the stories behind them and what that it's not just the music that matters, but these artifacts, the, the records themselves, they were witness to everything that we went through, that there's something etched in those grooves, I think, that's, that's significant. And so whenever I, when I would go out, you know, on tour for this book and talking to people, everyone had a story about the record that they first discovered or, or what really made them feel less alone in the world or what was the what was the record that you know cracked open their skull and really you know it almost felt like it became part of them i've never had a bad conversation a dull conversation 
which began with what was the first record that mattered to you. So that kind of turned into like, well, what if I, you know, start turning this on musicians and, and talk to them about what was that first record? Not, not necessarily the first record that your parents put on or that someone gave to you, or even the first one you bought, but what was that first record that made you go, this is amazing. This something in my world has shifted. Something in my DNA has been altered by this. Maybe it was even before they knew they wanted to be a musician, but they just felt less alone in the world because of this of this music. And and somehow it was their secret that they they would go up to their bedroom and 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 feel they knew something nobody else on the planet did. Yeah, I think a lot of people know that feeling. I, I certainly do. And and you have a really wide and diverse list of musicians and singers in your book. So I need to ask, what was your selection process? I'll just assume you started a list. I did. I did. My my biggest fear with this is that it could fall into just my musical wheelhouse. It could be filled with nothing but middle-aged white guys who played punk rock in the 80s, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the, the 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 music that I enjoy, but that could get really repetitive and probably not that interesting to anybody other than other middle-aged white guys who are like, yeah, the pixies and the replacements mm-hmm. and Oh, bad brains. So I was like, I really want to run the gamut. So like things outside of my comfort zone, uh, not just in terms of gender, but sexuality and, and, and race and age and try to get as diverse a, a group as possible. In a lot of ways, it doesn't change. It changes in the format. It changes in, you know, whether it was like, you know, Don McLean getting a, that first 45 or like a, a younger woman like Mia Barron at 21, you know, discovering music on YouTube, but how how they go about discovering that, how it changes them. And the, the more diverse the group becomes, the more you see that, like, that's really the thing that we all have in common. Despite the different genres, the, despite the different experiences, life experiences, that, that music hits us at that, at that core level. I'm 100% with you. It's one of the things we've tried to do both on the website with all the the genres as well as in these conversations. And what is absolutely fascinating is it really doesn't matter what genre you're coming from. It's usually a very similar experience to somebody else out there hearing something completely different. Yeah. I didn't think that I was going to have so much in common with like Donny Osmond. I mean, I'm not a Donny Osmond fan necessarily, but it's like, here's somebody like bubblegum pop, really not in my interest range, but I want to see if we can connect over this. And the enthusiasm he had for like talking about Stevie Wonder and how Stevie Wonder just changed his life. You know, he was already recording music at a young age, but something about about finding a Stevie Wonder album just really, it made him feel like he could go to a, to a safe place, to a different world. And then, and then like just the excitement that he had with talking about these. I mean, I could, I almost couldn't get him to just uh, stop listening to the record. At a certain point, we just had to stop. He's like, whoa, whoa, no, listen to this. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, how does he do that? And he just gets so excited and wrapped up and just like, oh, no, no, shh, listen to this part. Where does that even come from? And all of a sudden, I felt like I could be best friends with Donny Osmond, which is not a thought I have every day. Well, it's funny because he, he was an odd choice. And I was I was curious how you got to him and, and I was going to bring him up. But since we're there, it's, it's really interesting because reading about what you just said, I, I could totally, uh, you know, visualize and hear in my head that conversation where he'd just stop and he'd listen and you're on the other end of the phone. And then he's flipping over the album cover. And all of that was completely visceral yes. in your book, you know. 
And and that went on for much longer than than I even have in the book. That he just wanted me to listen to the whole thing and the way his emotions kind of went on this roller coaster. Yeah, I I feel that you can, regardless of your of your life experience, that there's listen to someone talk about the music that moved them and the stories behind them. Well, for, for me, it's much more interesting than a, a musician talking about about an album in terms of the technical side of it, in terms of, oh, I, I wanted to make music like this. I wanted to get like, sh- let's talk about the emotion. Let's talk about the vulnerability. Before you start thinking about music as a musician, how did you think about it as a kid? How did you think about it as a vulnerable human being who just felt like, wow, <laughs> this is so good. And the stories that evolve out of that are just fascinating, really. And that's why Music Nerd, I think, is the best way to approach this. When I put the list together, like, who's like a music nerd? Who's not going to talk about, who's not going to show off, in other words? Who's not going to say, who's not going to bring out records that show their wide array of influences and how cool they are and and how this all played into what they do? But who's going to approach it as a music nerd, as as a fan, first and foremost? who finds this stuff and it just, you know, disappears into it. Well, I think when you're young, hopefully it continues as you get older. But a lot of times, you know, it hits you in the heart first and then maybe moves north to your brain and then sometimes further regions south. <laughs> and the best of those musics hit all those areas. And I think we've all felt those where you're just, you know, on every level connecting with this thing, you know. Right. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And to see some the, the way some people shared those emotions, whether it's problems with their family life mm-hmm. or problems with their with their sexual identity or problems with figuring out what, their place in the world and feeling alone. I mean, whether you're someone famous like you know um, uh, Donny Osmond or someone like Alice Bag, who was you know uh, a part of this uh, upbringing where she felt like the, the machismo of her father really kind of was not something she wanted to be a part of. And like, what's my identity going to be? Right. Where am I going to find it? Right. Especially with family. I always find that so interesting of how music plays into it. Well, you know, family is important. And, you know, I'm going to go all over the place with some of your subjects, because like you mentioned, <laughs> there's a lot that they share in their stories. And it's not to say that it's the same story at all. In fact, some of them are so wildly different, as you mentioned. But, you know, When I was growing up, probably you were growing up, uh, radio and record stores and, of course, TV were very influential mediums for early rock and roll. And then it seems that everybody had a home record player or a transistor radio under their pillow at night, you know, the basement, uh, whatever. Is that consistent with your take? Uh, In in terms of everyone having kind of the shared family music experience? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think the further back you go, uh, they're definitely not everyone today, like everyone has their own iPods. They have uh, certainly a private music experience. But uh, uh, who was it? Verdeen White from Earth, Wind and Fire. First of all, in the beginning, he wasn't really sure what I was doing uh, or what I was trying to to get at with this. So I was trying to kind of prod him in telling stories. I mean, he was like, do you want to talk about Earth, Wind, and Fire? No, I don't. <laughs> I, that's not what this is about at all. What I want to hear about is those, uh, those early days discovering music. And he started reminiscing about the family record player that they had in the living room. And no one had their own record player. And his brothers were off recording music, you know, playing for guys like Muddy Waters and, and anyone who passed through town. And he, they would bring home these 45s and they would listen to them on the record player. And he was like, and then the, um, on the record player, you had the nickel. Remember the nickel? It was like, all of, I could see it in his eyes. Like he, it was just 
flooding back to him. Like you had the nickel, you had to put on the needle. And if he didn't have the, the specific nickel there, it would skip it or would roll all around. It was just one nickel. You had the nickel. He went out for like <laughs> 20 minutes, like just excited. He's like, I, he hadn't thought about the nickel in forever. And you lost that freaking nickel. Oh, your ass was in trouble because you scratched up daddy's records. He's going to kick your ass. You got to get the nickel. And it's just so much joy with that. I mean, the, the, the way that he expressed it. And, and, and some, some of them too, even if they had like a bad relationship uh, or their parents weren't all that, you know, happy about what they were listening to. Like Damon Johnston, he was the lead singer for uh, Brother Kane and played for lots of people. He, his parents or his father in particular was just not a fan of him like playing Van Halen. Uh, which he he often described to Damon as flamming and bamming. It's like, turn down that flamming and bamming. So even though he had kind of a, this kind of combative relationship with his dad, in, in a lot of ways, and I think about this as a parent too, and certainly my musical upbringing, you kind of know you found something special if there's an adult or certainly a, a parent who's like, oh God, what is that garbage? Totally. Like, yes, totally. I have won. My moment uh, that I remember probably most is uh, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust. I bought that pretty young. And my bedroom was next to my parents. And whenever I played Suffragette City, I had to literally run before he started <laughs> saying, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And I scratched my <laughs> record across that line because the first time my mom heard it, she came in and, what was that? And I was like, nothing, nothing, nothing. So did you, you grew up in a musical household like? I did, but they were. My mom was a uh, uh, very much a Cat Stevens, James Taylor kind of kind of person, and my dad loved Willie Nelson. It was Willie Nelson all the time. So definitely a musical household, but not the, the first record that actually mattered to me was uh, uh, um, Billy Joel's "The Stranger." I freaking I love that record because first of all, like record covers, we could talk about record covers. What the hell is going on in The Stranger? Mm, I mean, he's wearing a suit and he's on a bed and he's not wearing shoes. It's a twin bed, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and these boxing gloves and masks on the walls. Like, whoa, there's something deep. I love it. It's just, you know, as an adult, you go, oh, that's pretentious bullshit. But as like a 12 year old, you're like, wow, what is he getting at? But so they were okay with that. When I was playing like Italian restaurant, when that was blaring out of my bedroom, they were fine. But Around like 15, 16, when I started bringing home uh, the Pixies and mm -hmm. the replacements, uh, my dad was not amused. Not a fan. I mean, when they could hear like Gary's got a boner coming <laughs> from my bedroom, they're not, I mean, that's, they're not fans of like, why, what the androgynous, the hell are you talking about? Monkey go to heaven. I mean, just not, it's the kind of thing. And that's what made me go like, yes, this is perfect. Well, let's talk about a few of the people you spoke with. You know, we talked about like Sears and that's an old story, but record stores in general, you know, one of the ones I found interesting and in, in today's musicians, Amanda Shire, she found Leonard Cohen's music while she was working in a record store. Yes. And completely judging it by its cover. As a staff member, they all got a chance to pick out what get played. And usually, you know, the guys would be in there kind of bullying their way into the into the record store uh, uh, stereo, but she got a chance and put on Leonard Cohen. She's like, it was just true love instantly. And just kind of got immersed uh, to a point where even today she's like, I couldn't even cut one of his songs because he's, he's God. He's, uh, he's, he's what God's voice sounds like, I think is the way she phrased it. That's one of the reasons I'm very glad that record stores seem to be coming back. I mean, it, it's obviously hard right now in COVID times, but 
for me at least, and my, my peers and people I knew, no one was like, oh, I went to a record store today. When I got rid of my records, I fell into like, oh, everything can be found online and then Spotify and then iTunes, like that's the only place I'd go. But once I started to like rebuild my record collection, going to a record store, it's just fascinating. Even if you don't talk to a soul, just going in there, like I have no way of judging where anything cool is other than just flipping through, looking at covers, maybe talking, like building up my confidence to, to talk to the record store employees, which how is it that over the years, they still attract the coolest people on the planet? <laughs> I'm freaking 52 years old. I go to a record store and it's like, I'm so insecure. <laughs> There's a record store employee. I can barely, like, I want to ask for something super obscure. Like, uh, do you have any Wesley Willis albums here? <laughs> like I just, to, to be as cool as possible. It's always, they always go there. They're the ones with like the misfits tattoos and they just look freaking dyed hair. Like they just, I don't know, recovered from heroin, but still <laughs> just finished their acoustic album. They're just, there's everything about them. I find glorious and I want to learn from them. Like I'm Luke talking to Yoda, like just teach me your ways, record store guy. Yeah, my my wife learned not to go with me into Tower because it was an hour long experience. But then, you know, on, on the other end, the crate digging in used record stores is just an amazing experience. You know, there's a couple of artists I want to talk about. Susie Quattro, and she was way ahead of her time as a musician. But it was a Sunday night Ed Sullivan show in 1967. That was her ground zero. Yes, when Elvis Presley was on, uh, I don't I don't think it was his first appearance, but he was a. Uh, he was singing Don't Be Cruel, and she was sitting there, uh, I, I believe it was like six years old, watching this with her sister and her, her older sister, and her sister was just like, oh, just really enjoying it way too much and screaming and just losing her mind. And Susie says she just had this, this moment of revelation there. Like, and I was trying to figure out, like, what were you hearing in his music? I mean, you're six. You don't really understand the sexual part of it. Is it the energy? Is it the fact that it's something dangerous and she was like just all of that right. it was it was just this true animalistic rock and roll even even from what a six-year-old could understand about sexuality there's that energy that she just felt like that's what i want to be i want to be like that her dad walked in and he wasn't amused <laughs> he he was like that is disgusting and just turned the tv off which again is uh as i think as susie put it like that's just that reinforces it Eventually, he did come around to Elvis. Uh, she played, uh, um, what was it, Love, Love Me Tender. And he was like, all right, that boy can sing. <laughs> uh, Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo was another guy who found music via Ed Sullivan, and this time in 1964. And what, what I liked best about his story is his journey to purchase his first meaningful LP after seeing that. It wasn't quite what he thought it was. No. <laughs> he wanted to buy... A, uh, a Beatles record. Uh, he loved the Beatles so much, but he just couldn't afford it. And they were always like something like $4, $5. And he's like, I'm a kid. I, I'm not walking around with that kind of money. So he would always go, I think it was Woolworths that he would go with that, that, that they would buy their records from. And one day he came in and he found, he saw a record and there was the four faces with the dark background. And he's like, oh my God, it was for sale for something like a dollar. He's like, holy Lord, this is it immediately grabbed the record, paid for it, and ran back home. And he put it on a record player and and listened to it. And he's like, this doesn't 
really sound doesn't sound right it's vaguely it and then another song is i don't i don't think this is it either and then towards the end the last song he heard was you got me bugged <laughs> and he was like what the hell is this and and he looked and it was not the the beatles at all it was the bugs with that liverpool sound and he's like i've been tricked <laughs> i have been conned into buying the bugs which really, you know, as he said, it's it was his own fault. He didn't actually pay attention. It was a, a suave work by the uh, uh, art director of that record cover. So he had no choice. And that's, that's another thing, too, about which I kind of miss that, you know, maybe shows our age. When you made a mistake, when you buy a record and you're like, this isn't the record I wanted, you still keep listening to it because you bought it. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are you going to do? It's not like you can go like, I'll just go to Spotify and find the next thing. Like, I made this purchase. So he started listening to the bugs uh, a lot and became like, all right, I guess I like the bugs now. And then down the road, he was, uh, you know, it actually weirdly had an influence on on him and Devo that they did a song. And if you get a chance to check it out, um, I forget which record it was on. I think it's, I think it's hardcore, but it's called, it's got the same title. Uh, uh, you got me bugged and it's, such a difficult like it's frightening it is a frightening like you got me bug 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 <laughs> and i think there's a time when he's performing with like a little baby's mask right, right. Remember that? what was yeah. that character the he bougie did boy right the bougie boy <laughs> <laughs> and and like in a in a little pen and wearing a diaper the the song is just guaranteed to scare the shit out of you <laughs> if you play it to the right person uh, but it's kind of an homage to "You Got Me Bugged," and it, it, you know, it continues to be a record that that he listens to. So even though it was a humiliating defeat, and he he didn't get the Be- the Beatles record he wanted, and he he made a fool of himself, uh, he's like, in the long run, it works out. You know, one of the more fascinating family influence stories in your book, and you had mentioned them earlier, so I'm guessing you're a fan. And I know them, you know, peripherally. I'm not a huge fan, and it's lack of access more than anything or or timing, maybe. Angelo Moore, the lead singer and saxophonist for L.A.'s ska punk band Fishbone. Man, did his dad have some eclectic tastes. Amazing. I mean, he was listening to... Count Basie, but also like The Doors and Led Zeppelin. I mean, he put on a Cheech and Chong record occasionally. So he just run the gamut of everything. He didn't pigeonhole himself into like, this is my category. Anything that seemed cool to him, he'd bring home and play for the family, which I mean, that talk about a musical education. I mean, that's just going to you know make your brain explode with joy. And it probably had an influence because his bands were very wide-reaching in terms of their yes. influence and styles. And that he, there's a great story. He took his boombox to LA to break dance on one occasion, but on his journey back, he was handed a cassette tape on a bus that changed his life. Everything about this story was just amazing to me. One that someone begins a story by saying, "On a bus in Hollywood, going with my boombox town to break dance for money." That that's already <laughs> you've got me hooked. I mean, that's. I don't even care where this story is going. That's amazing. And then on the bus, some guy, random dude that he did not know just walked up to him and handed them a cassette and goes, here, no stranger has ever walked up to me on a public transportation and said, listen to this record. So it was the Bad Brain, the infamous uh, yellow tape that they did with the lightning bolt on it. So he listened to it and he's like, this is amazing. He was like, I can't believe, first of all, he's like, I just assumed it was a bunch of white cats. And then he's like, they're black, you know, reggae guys. Like, this could Mm -hmm. be me. Uh, And then his story ends up, and it's like weirdly 
hilarious and terrifying at the same time. And rarely do those two things intersect so well. But he's getting off the bus and he's walking home and he's got his boombox in one hand and a saxophone in the other. And the boombox is gigantic. I mean, that alone is, is pretty damn heavy. When this pickup truck pulls up and these freaking racist rednecks were like screaming racial epitaphs at him. And he's like, I just take off running. I'm just terrified for my life. So he's running and he's running and they're still chasing after him. And I'm like, why don't you drop the boombox or the saxophone? He's like, I'm not freaking dropping my boombox from some racist. <laughs> no, I'm going to hold on to it. So he's chugging with the gigantic boombox and the saxophone. It's just that that image is so amazing to me. And he, and he runs to the store and can't get in and turns around and the guys are there. And he's like, I'm, I'm in trouble. And he's like, wait a minute. So he presses play on the boombox lifts the boombox over his head and the bad brain starts blaring out of it and the racist rednecks are like oh oh god and they're repelled by the power of the bad brains and they turn around and leave so the bad brains basically saved his life in many ways in many yes in in figurative ways and literal ways apparently uh if you walk around with the boombox with some dc you know punks from the late 70s early 80s you will be invincible you you are protected from the forces of evil hey pantheon listeners christian swain here you caught me just finishing up some editing on getting real with john and beth i want to share my first experience with factor meals for you i think you'll find this interesting because i bet the same thing happens to you I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new Factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. We're speaking with Eric Spitznagel, the author of Rock Stars on the Record, the albums that changed their lives. There's another great one in the family influence section of Patterson Hood, and he, of course, is in the drive-by truckers, but he had a very, very famous father. And one of your your very first questions out of the gate to him is, quote, it's hard to imagine you discovering any kind of music in a way that didn't involve your dad. (laughs) (laughs) Because his, his dad was a bassist for uh, the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, who were just amazing. They played for Aretha Franklin, uh, Paul Simon, all everyone great kind of uh, utilized them. So, I mean, how odd must that have been to feel like, oh, I've discovered this new record, and your dad's like, oh, yeah, I played on that. Oh. See, I'm an, oh, damn it. <laughs> damn it. Right. You think you found something that's yours, and then it's like, oh, yeah, dad did the bass on that. <laughs> The great part about this story is um, he did find an album in his dad collection that really, really made a mark on him. But interestingly, as we kind of talked about before, 
it was based on the album cover. Yes, one that he originally wasn't that impressed with. Uh, Tan Rundgren's uh, Something Anything, which was that the flower, if you recall. And he just looked at that initially and it's like, nah, I, it's not jumping out at me. But it came back in and his dad was like, oh, you have to listen to this. As he did, like there was something about that cover, which at first seemed it was easy to dismiss that just transfixed him. I mean, I, I always fascinated with how album covers, how that ties into the experience of music. I mean, I, Exile on Main Street, I can't listen to that without imagining, you know, the guy with the cheeks, with whatever he's got in his cheeks and the, this everything, the grunginess of it. Um, it's such a part of that experience because if long before, you know, we had Spotify or other places to get distracted by imagery, you just sit in your room and you'd stare all the secrets were in the album cover. You couldn't, you know, now I discover an artist like, I'll Google them and see nice. what the critics have to say and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I mean, there was that time where it's like all he had, like, was this. You look at this and you're like, I have to create the backstory to this to this artist. I don't know what these songs are about other than what meaning I, I put to them. You know, even more than sitting there by yourself, you know, I can remember Kiss Alive or Blue Oyster Cult or, or some of these ones where you'd sit around with friends and, and, and later with friends of both sexes and stuff, and the, the records would go in a circle, you know, and everybody would look at them and participate in this thing. And it was much more communal and much, it wasn't so solo. Right, yeah. Uh, my brother and I shared a copy of uh, Kiss Alive uh, 2, which we were very com- uh, combative about because we both <laughs> took ownership of it. Uh, but I remember that, like, the cover, the, the back cover portraits of all the band members and Gene Simmons in the rain with blood coming from his mouth. And I was like, what in the world? That's terrifying and cool at the same time. I feel like he's going to come and murder me in my sleep. But I also just, uh, I just find it, it was so just mesmerizing. And you'd be all right with it, too. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. I, I interviewed Gene once and I told him that like he terrified me as a as a kid. I thought he would uh, come out of my closet at some time point and abduct me. And he was like, how do you know I wasn't in there? It's like, of course he would say that. Even creepier. <laughs> Even creepier, exactly. <laughs> so Cherie Curry, who was the lead singer of the groundbreaking girl group, The Runaways, had music in her house. And this is a common theme, but she didn't care much for of it. And her friend Paul would actually loan her records and handpick them. And those would have a, a profound effect on her as well. Yeah. I, I love that that kind of relationship formed where you kind of find a musical ally who, who turns you on to these different records. And they would go when the Bowie's live album came out and they would sit in the parking lot of the record store waiting for it to, to open up. I love talking to her because she had so much so much enthusiasm for how these songs were discovered and the journey that you used to have to go on to find these. I mean, it's it's hard sometimes not to sound like old fogies, but like you really had almost nothing to go on. You had to trust the judgment of, hope you found somebody like she had Paul who would, who would turn her on to these things or you go to record stores, but you really freaking like Indiana Jones looking for the lost ark. There, there was literally, you had to use your wits to find anything that was interesting or, or, or groundbreaking or that really, really changed you. So yeah, she was like the, the fact that, you know, she found anything at all. She, every time it happened, it's like, this is a miracle. This is life changing. That's the fun and excitement or was of it, you know, because yeah. it was so, you know, random and that, you know, that's something that you mentioned with her is there's, there was a randomness and a right timeness in some of Paul's picks that really influenced her. Yeah. 
that re there really is a sense of like, you need to hear a record when you need to hear it. Hopefully you're lucky enough to discover it. Or like, like for me in high school, when I was in my Billy Joel phase and feeling really insecure and kind of out of place, and then, like, just by chance, this record store employer is like, hey, you, you'd probably like this. Basing this on, I certainly didn't come in there looking like the cool kid. And, and listening to this Replacements Let It Be album, like, it was my secret. It was, it, for some reason, even though I could identify with nothing on the record, I was not androgynous. I was not an alcoholic in Minneapolis. I, you know, was not dealing, uh, it, it was just everything about, uh, uh, that punk angst that was in that record was not reflecting uh, my personality, but it did make me feel like I knew something other kids didn't know. I walked a little taller in school because of I had these songs, you know, these boneheads in my head, like they just, they were listening to Phil Collins and Bon Jovi, but I knew about the replacements, which they didn't know about. So I was slightly ahead of them. So that's the, the same thing, like you can find a record at the right time and it can change everything. It really can make the biggest difference. And definitely, and in, in, in another very interesting way, and we'll circle back to the modern day version, but mixtapes um, was another way. And some friends you trusted and they would just give you great mixtapes. I'm sure we've all had, it's like, well, that was shit, you know, yeah. and not good ones, <laughs> you know, but like, you know, Alison Mosshart of The Dead Weather, she found somebody and, uh, and then the two women in Prince, they were brought together by mixtapes. And, yes, and, fell in love, actually. Right. Uh, uh, Wendy and Lisa. Uh, who knew each other since childhood would trade music back and forth and they start making these mixes for each other and they realized like this is we're this is how we're courting each other this is how we're falling in love through mixtapes and it, it does confuse me these days like how do people tell somebody else they're attracted to them without mixtapes how does love actually happen without a mixtape i mean i'm sure there's a playlist that you can make for someone in share a Spotify link, but it's not the same as walking up with a trembling hand and handing somebody a cassette tape that you have personally designed and given some creative name that you've come up with and the pain of like, and what's also what makes it better. And I get, well, we're going to have to dissect ourselves here, Stephen. Are, are we just talking of romanticizing our past? But there is something I think to, the space restrictions of a mixtape, of a cassette tape, that you you have to make this fit. You, I mean, you don't want a lot of dead air at the end, but you don't want to cut off a song. So what tells the story in the 45 minutes per side or 30 minutes per side that you want to tell? And how do you, how do you begin side two? There's no more side twos. Right, right. That's what it makes me mourn. Like, where is the side B, the, you know, flip it over, flip over the cassette or the... Or the record. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can go back to the LP too. You know, uh, you get they had 15 minutes to sequence you. You know, and then you've got to flip it over. But you know, I right. think yeah. the art, the art of sequencing. You know, not, it's not dead, but it was better. <laughs> it's it's better when you have. I think restrictions are good. I like the restrictions of listening to a record and going like, I'm just gonna listen to the whole thing because otherwise I got to get up, walk <laughs> over, and take the needle off. You know, another point we've talked about is album covers and, and how that has often ushered you into music. Not you personally, but the people you spoke with and, and right. probably you personally. But there are two people who they had very interesting entry points. And 
it was really due to the music festival or the concert experience and these albums that were live recordings of those. One was Ian McKay of hardcore band like Minor Threat and Fugazi. What was interesting to me is his touch tone record, ironically, was a hippie classic, which, you know, that's hard to imagine. Yes, and he loved it. It was uh, the soundtrack to Woodstock. And he actually discovered it. Uh, a homeless uh, veteran was living at their house for a while and, and brought in his crate of records. And one of them was the, the three-disc soundtrack to Woodstock. And he ended up just falling in love with it. Uh, and not just loving the music, but on, on car trips, he, his gaze would go outside at fields as they passed and thought, like, would that be a good spot to put on a music festival? I mean, he'd think about it. He would, he would go to lists of people, like, what bands should be in here like ah jimmy hendrix no jimmy's dead damn it uh who else and try to figure out like he, he would curate it and figure out who would be in his festival uh which is so different i mean i guess in some ways because he runs a label now i mean he is still curating bands he is still kind of trying to be this central hub for for artists to come through uh but for that for this guy who kind of was such a huge part of of, of hardcore to start off in a place that no one would think of as like, oh, the most punk festival ever was Woodstock. <laughs> uh, and that that would be his his touchstone. And even today, like he didn't all of a sudden go into punk and go like, ah, Woodstock is shit. He, he said he's gone through so many copies of that album that he'd wear it out or scratch it up and replace it or loan it to somebody and have to get another one. So there's always like there's there's only one record, it seems, in his collection that never disappears or has to be replaced if it ever does disappear, and that's Woodstock. It shows you you just can't tell by, you know, looking at someone like that. I know what their musical tastes are. I mean, for him, they run much deeper. Well, even a more direct link, which is just fascinating to me, is Perry Farrell of Jane's Addiction. And he remembers a benefit album as a very special thing and recalls daydreaming about creating his own festival. And then he actually does it. Yes. Uh, and that was Concert for Bangladesh uh, from George Harrison. He just loved the idea that these musicians got together. And, and in his mind, he was like, there. he imagined them all being like best friends, that they would get together and rehearse a little bit but they all came together for this common goal to do something good, to put something good out in the world. And that stuck with him. And it was still in his head when he was like, well, Jane's Addiction needs to do our final tour. Let's make a festival. Let's bring our friends out there and let's just make some noise together. Who knew that Lollapalooza would be, become such a permanent part of our lexicon? Everything's connected here, which is, is true yeah. when I read your book. There's so many connections there, and I, I hope people out there – feel those as well. And I'm going to show my age here for a couple of things. Um, <laughs> most people had a much more collaborative and social experience. Do you think that's changed today? I do. I do. I, 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 I'm very reticent to be too old man Smithers about it too. Like I was better in my age because of course it's, it's, it's impossible not to romanticize your past and kids are still discovering music. They're as, you know, the younger people I talked to for this book, they are finding it. It may not be in the ways that we did, but the, the thing that disturbs me and I think is actually lacking, and I, I don't think it's ageist, is the socialization. Finding everything on the computer is not the same as having to go out into the world and, and make relationships and talk to people. 
leave your house, put on a pair of pants and go to a record store and flip and listen to what they're playing and watch what other people are talking about. I, I just think it's, it's not good for our brain. The best music that has entered in my life came from hunting and gathering. It came from going out there and making the effort and talking to people and interacting online. I know there are plenty of you know places to, to get direction and, and socialization online is a vastly different and inferior, I think, uh, approach than in the real world. So back to what we were talking about with record stores or you know, going even going to clubs. I remember a time of just going to clubs and going, I don't even know what, what band this is, but I just, I want to discover this. So, and I, I fall into the trap too of online. It, it's like I used to dream about as a kid, like what if there was a place you can go to and hear everything? <laughs> well, there it is. I, I would have daydreams as a kid. Like what if I got a thousand dollars and I could go to a record store? You know, you, when you go look at a record and you're like, I would get this if I had a lot of income. If I have like $40 to spend, I'm not going to buy this. But if, if, if I already have like 40 stacks of records up there, then I'll do it. Like the fantasy of being able to hear all this stuff. But I, it really, I think we, we give up too much by not having that socialization. Yeah, it's important. And, and YouTube may be the new Ed Sullivan and Spotify playlist may be the new mixtapes. And, and however people learn about music, uh, I, I think we'll continue to hear. And you have some very young people in your book who, who speak to how important it is and how yeah, it's helped yeah. them through situations and brought on new friends and even lovers and, you know, which reflects back to, to much of what, how it affected us as well. Yeah, yeah. They're not losing that enthusiasm. Hopefully not. I just think sometimes technology gets in the way. It makes things easier, but it doesn't always have to be easier. You don't really discover something online in the same way that you take a risk when you're like, well, the cover, cover looks cool. Let's see. Let's take a jump. See if it's actually worth it. Well, I'll tell you, uh, to all our listeners, uh, a great way to discover a lot of music and, and what influenced people you make love is to read Eric Spitznagel's book, Rock Stars on the Record, the albums that changed their lives. We talked a few stories here. There's a lot more. And uh, I think there's something for everyone in your book, which is, you know, to me, the mark of a, you know, very interesting read. So congratulations. Thank you, Stephen. That means a lot. That really does. All right. Well, I loved it. So, <laughs> but I'm the old guy. <laughs> Do you have anything else coming up, by the way? Um, not so much right now. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a novel that uh, is also music related about kind of a vinyl obsessive that uh, I always feel is bad luck to say too much about. There is a chance that the, the, the way this has been selling, that the publisher wants to do sequels to it. So beyond rock stars on the record, there could be, you know, soul artists on the record, hip hoppers on the record. Art directors on the record. <laughs> there you go. That could happen. So I could, I mean, really... As we were putting them to bed, I was still hearing back from people like George Clinton. Oh, wow. As soon as I submitted, you know, the edited manuscript, like George Clinton was like, I want to do it. It's like, oh, God, dang it. Uh, so, yeah, the, the conversations never, never get old for me. I, I think there's so many people out there who I'd love to hear from. So I could very much see myself doing doing more of these books and having more of these conversations. Like my biggest hope is that it spurs other conversations. It spurs people to start asking those questions of friends and, and those people in their life because they're, everyone's got a story. Yeah, that's a perfect way to summarize the whole thing. And it's a fascinating book. And this was a fantastic and fascinating discussion. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.